Today's reading comes from Matthew 6, 1 to 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You may be seated. Well, as you're being seated, uh, let's pray. God, uh, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to meet as a group here in freedom. Thank you that we all had enough money to buy ourselves coffee this morning. So, we, Lord, we, as we look at this text and as we contemplate what it means to give, I ask that you'd be with us, that you'd open our eyes and our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen. So, as you can see, we've hit chapter 6. We've been like, what, five months in chapter 5. We've now broached the threshold of chapter 6, and, and we pivot. Jesus pivots, and he actually gets into a new section here on the Sermon on the Mount. So, so bear with me. I'm going to use a metaphor to introduce it. As many times as I've said before, I, I uh, have a, an office space at a place called Work Lab at the corner of Venables and Clark. Now, over my, you know, six, eight months there, I've been working away, and I've been looking out the window, probably because I have adult ADHD, and I've been watching this building. Initially, when, we fir- when I first started there, it was this yellow building, and it was a warehouse, and it's, this whole area is zoned kind of like industrial, like light industrial. So I was watching delivery trucks go in and out, and I'm thinking, I'm like a little kid, like, oh, this is cool. And... Uh, But over the course of time, I saw a sign go up. And this sign states, rezoning application. I thought, oh, this is interesting. And so, you know, sooner or later, the traffic slowed down. And then there came a time when there was a plethora of parking. It was awesome. It was probably the best time I could go there. I didn't even have to walk. I know, as you can tell, it's amazing. I get there, and I was like amazed that I could get a spot right close to the workspace. About two weeks ago, I noticed something different. I see this blue fence go around the property. Oh, that's cool. Two days later, after the blue fence goes up, a demolition crew moves in. And within a short order, this huge yellow cinder block warehouse is completely reduced to rubble. Completely reduced to rubble. And then after a time, you see big trucks come in, put in these like dumpsters. They're filling it up with like junk. It looks like, looks like a post-apocalyptic film set. And, and all of a sudden, what's left is a complete, bare, empty lot. Last Thursday, as I'm writing the sermon, I look out the window and I see a different crew. It's the crew of backhoes, you know, like those big track hoes. And then one, one of them has this set of jaws on it. And the other one has like the, a jackhammer attachment, you know, and they're like, dun, 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 dun. I'm like, what the heck are they doing now? You know, I, I know what they're doing is they're going layer by layer and getting all of the foundation down, down, down. So over the course of the day, I watch them work. They, they reveal one layer with the hoe, jackhammer it out, remove the junk. Go down another layer, remove all the concrete, get layer, layer, layer. So at the end of the day, you could just barely see the tops of the hose working in this massively huge hole. At the end, all that was left was a hole with no trace of the former building. So why am I telling you this weird metaphor? Well, this this story illustrates our Sermon on the Mount. Our Sermon on the Mount is from chapters 5 through 7. 
And the Beatitudes at the beginning, and at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus announces a rezoning. He says, look, this land has been rezoned. This land is changed. And he proclaims a change of ownership and a change of use. In our past section of these antitheses that we talked about, you know, of anger, lust, murder, you know, all of these nice things leading up to loving your enemy, Jesus actually, that's him putting a fence around us, bringing in the jackhammers and removing all of the surface rubble. He leaves us with the realization that we're left wanting. We're left wanting. We've got junk in our lives that have got to be moved. Now, what we come into today is the stuff that's under the surface. See, we all have rubble in our lives that's dangerous. It's dangerous to us, and it's dangerous to others. See, we all need these dumpsters to come into our lives and have stuff removed. See, Jesus in this text now, moving all the way through chapter 6, he takes the jackhammer and layer by layer upon layer, he brings us to the end of ourselves. And he'll leave us, he'll leave us, as Jake left us last week, at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, saying that we need to be perfect. But we aren't done. In chapter 6, we got to get underneath. As a side note, I don't think it's a coincidence by chance. At the end of chapter 7, Jesus leaves the Sermon on the Mount. His final teaching on the Sermon on the Mount talks about building houses upon a solid foundation or a rock. As we continue in this Sermon on the Mount, each layer, each layer of this sermon gets deeper, more traumatic, and infinitely more personal. Here in chapter 6, what Jesus does... See, chapter 5 brought us to the point where our actions were sourced from, like, revealed what was inside our hearts. Jesus, in chapter 6 here, he flips this upside down. He goes to the cardiologist. He puts a scope inside of us. He examines inside of our hearts, and he talks about what our motives and our intentions are behind all of our stuff, everyday actions. So, verse 1 of chapter 6 is an introduction for the whole chapter. It, he'll talk about, firstly, our religious life, our, our giving of our uh, things to the needy, our uh, prayer life, fasting. I know if you're like, whoa, what's that? We'll get to that in the next few weeks. In the second half of chapter 6, he deals with the mundane life. He talks about what we treasure, what we desire in our hearts, and he talks about our anxiety and our fear. So the first layer this morning, all that to say, our first layer we're going to address is that of um, acts of mercy. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This verse is our introduction, as I said. Jesus is is taking in the jackhammers, and he's introducing us to this whole text. Essentially, he's talking about intentions behind all of our actions. Our outline for this morning is thus. Selfish acts of mercy... Selfless acts of mercy, point two, and point three, opposing rewards. So, selfish mercy, fun, fun. Uh, Matthew 6, 1 and 2. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to have be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father is in heaven. And you're like, okay, introduction. So with this in mind, then, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they will be praised by others. Truly, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
You could, for our context here in Vancouver, paraphrase this verse this way. You could say thus, when you give to the needy, don't post an Insta story as the influencers do on social media in order to be liked and shared by many. Truly, I say to you, their desire for a viral post, they have received their reward. Yeah, okay. Nobody laughed. That's okay. All joking aside, notice the language here. Notice the language that Jesus uses here. It's not whether or not we help people. It's not whether or not, uh, do I feel generous today or not, but rather the motivation behind our giving. We need to understand that in the 21st century that we read here as readers into this, that there was an expectation culturally in Jesus' time that giving was a normative thing in Jewish culture. And it also carried over into the church culture, the early church. This command of giving, even as it lives forward in, you know, in their streams of Christianity, uh, like Catholicism or Orthodoxy, and it's called almsgiving. In many ways, this kind of thing is foreign to us, isn't it? Our, you know, don't we have taxes? Don't we have programs that deal with some of this stuff? Jesus here addresses a reality that's more practical and way more face-to-face. So, before we go any further, we need to have an understanding and a working definition of what giving to the needy looks like and what it is. So let's first go to the Old Testament. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. Now the author here is speaking about, it's in a text about the Sabbath, and it's talking about making sure you're, you're caring for your neighbor. And so he says this, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudged when you give to him, because this is for the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This command was one of social justice in nature. It was was a desire, a willingness, an understanding that there are people who are marginalized in your centers of, of culture that you need to take care of them. There are people who need our help in our communities. So with this kind of cultural understanding firmly rooted in Jesus' day, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. This is Jesus. And when Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and this is normative, and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' acts of mercy were sourced from a place of compassion. Now, I'm going to nerd out a bit on you. This Greek word here that's for compassion, it's like splakinizome. It literally means like your guts. Jesus was moved to the very guts of who he was at the sight and the plight of the people. Jesus' acts of mercy would not only bring healing to people, but actually restore brokenness spiritually. For us this morning... A plausible working definition for acts of mercy that Jesus is referring to here would be thus. A religious act inspired by compassion and a desire for justice, whereby an individual who possesses the economic means helps in a material way his less fortunate neighbor. Some years ago, when I was in Greece, I had a Greek friend who who had a little bit of an existential crisis and, and... yeah, through a series of events, he, he believed in Jesus. God touched his heart and did amazing things. So for two years, I walked alongside with this guy. I discipled him. 
Uh, but for fun, we attended this little Greek Orthodox church right at the base of the Acropolis called Agios Dimitrios, like St. George. And uh, so every, every Sunday, I would, we would go to the early Orthodox service, and then we'd go to the Protestant service afterwards. Now, what struck me about this, the first time that I ever set foot into an Orthodox church, it wasn't the, it wasn't the icons, it wasn't the burning incense or the candles, um, it wasn't even the ethereal you know, chanting of the priests or the really cool vibe of the, you know, the hacking and this, you know, you almost got high from all the incense in there. What got me was the beggars. See, unbeknownst to us, as like 50 of us were jammed like sardines in this little stone ancient church, as the service began, homeless people, beggars, people from every walk of life, every shape, size, and, you know, whatever appendage is missing, all descended on this church all waiting for us to exit. I had no clue what was about to happen next. So the doors open. My friend and I walk out. And almost instantly, like the pop, you know, like if you're on the red carpet, like the paparazzi is attacking you as you're coming out and there's lights flashing and there's noise and there's screaming. All I could see was like the a mob of unruly, infirmed people almost like attacking us and, I'm, and all going, sepetakalo, 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 like whining, like, please, 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 please. Whew. Finally, when we escaped the mob, over coffee, my buddy asked me, what'd you think? He was referring to the service itself. I'm like, I lose it. I'm like, what's with the beggars? Like, seriously, these people... Are, These people are parasites. Doesn't the government have programs to solve some of these issues? Why do you continue to put up with manipulative ploys for extracting money from your wallet? Some of these people have better shoes than me. What a joke. Why does the church encourage this type of toxic and manipulative behavior? Now, I'm sure some of you here can at least sympathize with my sentiments. Because let me tell you, what I can't describe... In, the, uh, in my story is the smell. My friend laughs at me, actually. He shakes his head in disbelief, and he says, what I've just experienced is the ancient sacrament of almsgiving. Hmm. He says, as a man of God, Heath, I, you'd think that you'd know about this. He tells me that it wasn't up to me to determine who needed help and who didn't. We were required to give joyfully to those in need with selfless motives. And then he quotes these verses to me. Oh, that stung. It was a slap across my face of my motives. See, here was I, the poster boy for works of mercy. I was the guy who worked on the front lines of the refugee ministry. I was giving clothes. I was giving food. I was cooking food. I was finding shelter, distributing supplies to people. I was taking people to hospital, helping them find counselors for their trauma. And that, this moment, I was discipled by my disciple. My motive for giving was based on some sort of internal meritocracy. I decided who was worthy of help. I decided who wasn't worthy of help. In that moment, I was rebuked for my righteous and, and misplaced motives. Even though I was not standing on the street corner proclaiming all the good things that I'd done, pumping my own tires, so to speak, but this mob of unseemingly unworthy people 
revealed the true state of my heart, and it was rotten. It was horrible. So we, before we actually get to the problem that Jesus addresses in this text, we actually need to examine our heart. We need to ask a question, a hard question. Do we even help anybody at all? Do I, out of a sense of compassion, a need for justice, do I give of my time? Do I give of my resources? Do I give to those in need? Do I? Do I give to those? Do I even notice the people around me who are hurting and needy? Or are you like me? You see people, but you do nothing because you don't think they're worth it or deserve it, or maybe they're just panhandlers trying to call me out of money. Add to that, our society doesn't give us any favors or do us any help. It's increasingly difficult here because of our narcissistic, self-oriented world. We actually want to get something in return, don't we? This text speaks directly to our hearts and our culture. It's more personal than this text. It's like a barometer for us, for where our heart is. It's not in a guilt-inducing text. It's a barometer of where our heart is at. It's a diagnostic tool. Do we engage people in this ancient practice of almsgiving or charity? I suspect in this room, there's a mixed bag of yes, no's, and yeah, I'm not sure. Jesus wants to remove this rubble out of our lives. He actually, he actually, we need something outside of ourselves to come in and actually break us apart and take away the junk. So he wants us to take a hard look at ourselves So if we don't look at the people who are marginalized around us, what does that say about us? Jesus does say, though, in this text, if we do give, it gets even more subtle and and scarier. If we do give, if we think of those in need, if we actually are motivated to help, it's also possible to help out of, you know, autonomous and, and selfish means and ways. Jesus says that our motives often are twisted and are skewed towards act of mercy for personal status and recognition. If our acts of kindness are more about how we look and how we are portrayed in society, how we are viewed on our Insta posts or, you know, how will we dance in our TikTok feeds, you know, if this is the case, then chances are our motives are misplaced. And we are like the hypocrites that Jesus actually refers to in verse 2. Two things we must grapple with right here and right now. It's not if we practice acts of mercy, but how. If you've never practiced acts of mercy, or if you give like a social media influencer, the root, the rubble that Jesus is trying to remove is one of personal autonomy. I decide for myself. Self-reliance. You're just like me. You're deciding on who gets what and how. You give based on a benefit that I get. You know, you do a cost-benefit analysis, and if it works all right, then I can, I can get it. See, we rely essentially on our trumped-up moral compass. That's hard. Jesus says here that if, you, that if you give out of this type of posture in your life, you're not giving out of pure motives. You engage in selfish acts of mercy. That brings us to point two, selfless mercy. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1, 3, and 3 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But when you give to the needy, do not let your right hand or your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I always mess that up. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. So that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you. Jesus says here that the cure for narcissistic, selfish giving is to do it in secret. Acts of service and kindness without a personal advertising campaign associated with it. If you're astute, if you've been paying attention for the last five or six months, upon reading this text, you might go, wait a minute here. I'm being, am I being hoodwinked? Because you're thinking, if we turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, it says this, it says, look, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. Like, it doesn't Jesus contradict himself here? Like, what's up with that? To use Jesus' metaphor, it's like Jesus seeming to say with his right hand, I got it right, give so that all may see the glory of God, or with your left hand, don't let anyone know or see. What's with this? Like, what's with the deal? See, the difference here is between the effects of our changed lives and how that affects others around us compared to our motive for giving. This particular issue is about who receives glory or notoriety or fame from our actions. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a, he's a doctor who turned pastor in the UK in the 50s and 60s. He said this, it's got a commentary, commentary on this book, Sermon on the Mount, that's absolutely brilliant. Like, you should really read it. He says this, But of course, that is obviously only a superficial contradiction. You'll notice how the first statement puts it. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In other words, there's no contradiction here. But we are all called to do both things at one and the same time. The Christian is to live in such a way that man looking at him and seeing the quality of his life will glorify God. He must always remember at the same time that he is not to do things to attract attention to himself. He must not desire to be seen of men. He is never to be self-conscious, meaning self-aware. There is no contradiction here. It's all about who is the recipient of the glory that comes from our actions. Selfish acts of mercy that bring glory, that bring notoriety, that bring recognition to ourselves, or selfless acts of mercy that bring glory, notoriety, and recognition to God. What should shine is how our lives are changed and how God radiates from us, how God has changed us. Jesus says that a cure here for selfish, narcissistic giving is to do it in secret. Acts of service, kindness, without our personal advertising campaign intact. So how does this actually work? How does this play itself out in the real world? And they feel, they feel my tension here. How do I articulate this to you without tooting my own horn? So we're going to use a story of my grandparents. Now, as a kid, every Christmas, every Easter, every Thanksgiving, every family affair was never really a private family affair. We would always go to my grandparents' home, and the house would be full of all, I called them all the stray cats and dogs in the neighborhood. Everyone was invited. It was a gong show. Some of my earliest memories were all houses full of, of people I didn't know who then became aunts and uncles, special aunts and uncles over time. I grew up thinking that this was normal. Yeah, let me tell you how much trauma that's caused in my marriage. Anyway, years later, I actually understood the reality behind this. See, as, as Mariko and I, my wife and I, began to raise support to go to Greece as missionaries, we would go to all these little churches in the middle of nowhere, all over Alberta, 
and I would preach. And every single place this happened, after the service, somebody would inevitably come up to me and ask me, so Miko, Miko, that's your last name? And I'm like, yep. He says, do you by chance know a Bill and Eileen Miko? I'm like, yeah, of course, they're my grandparents. And then a story would develop. Yeah, your grandparents, dot, dot, dot. There were stories of how my grandparents gave people money for cars, houses, land, took them in to live with them in rough spots in their marriages, counseled them, and the list goes on and on and on. I never knew any of this of my grandparents. They never had any access of money. They were not rich at all. They struggled to get by. In fact, after my grandmother passed away like 10 years ago, all that was bequeathed to me was a toolbox full of dollar store tools and my grandfather's first Bible. That's it. I was never told of these acts of mercy. But through the interactions with others, I began to weave, like kind of one of those crazy people in a wall where you put all the like strings and threads. I began to weave a tapestry of amazing acts of mercy in so many people's lives I can't even count. My parents never won the Governor General's Award. They never won any awards of honor or bravery or acts of service. But their lives glowed like a city on a hill to others that I didn't even know. After their death, I can really honestly say that Matthew chapter 15, verse 16 is true of them. Matthew rather, 5, verse 16 is true of them. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. Jesus is saying today that the cure for selfish, narcissistic giving is to do it in secret. Acts of service and kindness without personal advertising campaigns. This brings us to our third point. Opposing rewards. See, our third point revolves around this question of why. Like, what's in it for us? If we give in secret, what's the point? Now, let's just acknowledge right out of the gate, um, reward language makes us uncomfortable. Particularly if you grew up in the church, you've been in the church, if you haven't grown up in the church, good. You don't have to worry about this. This is kind of like one of those post-traumatic stress counseling sessions. So reward language is really difficult for us. Let's read the text again, all of it. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others, people, in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Ooh, reward language. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Okay. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees, who sees in secret will reward you. Now, people who, who have grown up in, in the Protestant churches, particularly after, you know, Martin Luther in the 1500s, any talk of re- reward language gets our hackles up. It makes us nervous because we think, okay, rewards means meritocracy, means I can work for myself, means that therefore I can control how I am saved. This is not what this is saying at all. Please, hear me. This is not what this is. If we, if we get hung up on the reward language, we aren't going to actually hear what Jesus is saying. So to help us, might I postulate a way of thinking about this that might kind of unhinge some of those hackles? Think of it this way. Actions have consequences. If we do good, 
practically speaking, we're rewarded by, with good consequences, right? If we do something bad, we are rewarded with, well, you know, another set of consequences that are negative and, you know, not very nice in nature. Now, one of the very first words I ever learned in Greek was this really awkward word called phakalaki. Yeah, I know, it sounds horrible. Colloquially, it literally means little envelope. Colloquially, on the street, it means bribe. That's one of the first words I learned. So part of our visa requirements to stay was that uh, we had to have a health checkup. So uh, Mariko and I, it's easy. We go to the adult hospital, we get checked out. So we're taking our kids to the, to the little kitty hospital, you know, like the, right downtown Athens, there's a, a children's hospital. And so we go in there, we go into the reception, and we show us the paperwork, and we blunder through the language, and we say, okay, we need this form filled out here. And the lady goes, okay, no problem. Go over to this ward, get a stamp from Yorgos over here, and come back. So we go get a stamp from Yorgos, we come back. And then she says, oh, no, 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 you got to go here and get this one from Yanis. And so we go over, after five or six of this, you know, like, hide-and-go-seek with the, you know, with the stamps and the signatures, like, it's like a scavenger hunt. Either we were just too stupid. After five or six of these, we came face-to-face with this ugly word, fakalaki. Obviously, this reception is dumbfounded by the, the stupidity of us as foreigners. She comes out and asks for a bribe to take care of the paperwork. Now, embarrassed and angry now, I, you know, I was furious at the waste of time. We're like, like five hours. I lose it. I tell her where to go, what she can do with her bribe when she got there, and, uh, you know, and I storm out of the hospital with the incomplete paperwork. Great. A few days later tail between our legs, we go back to the hospital. Luckily, we were greeted by a different receptionist. She looks at our documents. She sees, oh, well, this is easy. She writes a handwritten note with a phone number on it. She says, okay, go to, go to this ward over here, have them fill this out, give them a stamp, and therefore, you know, if you have any problems, you have them phone me. It's not a problem. 20 minutes later, <laughs> We're finished with our paperwork in our hand, and we're exiting the hospital. And as we're leaving the compound, Mariko stops, my wife. She says, oh, stop, i got to do something. So she runs in to the florist, and she buys this massive bouquet of flowers. I'm like, stupid man. Like, what the heck is that for? And she says something that's kind of profound. She says, look, I'm not opposed to rewarding people for good behavior. Good or bad, our consequences have actions. See, this receptionist took pity on us. She did her job, yeah, but she took pity on us, and expecting nothing in return, she did it. The consequences of our actions, it resulted in a gift, an un- unsuspecting gift. And it was, but this was huge for us. This is the way we're supposed to give. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us this morning. Verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In this text, Jesus bluntly says that if we advertise, if we promote, if we monetize our good works, we are treating people and our giving like financial transactions, receiving praise and reward for payment for good works done. If our, if our reward is required up front, if we're requiring glory and honor from what we can get from the scenario, if we see this as a payment for good deeds, this type of giving at its root is mercenary. 
It's just like the receptionist asking for a bribe. Instead of unknowingly being rewarded for good behavior, we wrongly desire payment for good behavior. Just like a bribe, this type of giving, transactional giving, is horrific in nature. It speaks right to the heart of our motivations. Jesus wants to take a jackhammer and remove this out of our lives. Verse 3 and 4. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When we give selflessly, not for show, not for reward, but out of compassion and justice, when we give in an act of mercy, with our motivations in secret, the consequences are heavenly, future-oriented. It's like receiving an unexpected gift. The language is future-oriented here. See, my, my grandparents, they did not expect any rewards for their behaviors. They struggled to make ends meet. But why would they do that? Why would they do that? I think they really understood the implications of this verse. And right now, they're enjoying the consequences of their actions part of which is seeing God himself. I can't speak to the specific types of rewards they have in heaven. Can't even begin to speculate, don't want to speculate it. All I know is that they're standing before before God himself. That's a pretty huge reward. People of Christ City, despite our hang-ups and reward language, Jesus says that we are rewarded for our motivations behind our giving, our acts of service. Either it's, it's finite It's temporal, it's autonomous and self-gratifying, giving glory to ourselves. Or it's hidden, selfless, future-oriented, giving glory to God. So to bring this all together, the layer of our heart that Jesus wants to remove and expose this morning is that of our motivations and intentions behind our acts, behind our compassion, behind our mercy. Some of you this morning... I've just come to the realization that you're just like me. You're afraid to give because you might might think that other people will think you're a pushover, you know, being scammed too easily. You know, you've got some sort of eternal metric that, that has like a needs versus scam quotient in there. You give based on merit. You feel, you feel maybe that you could help, but, but this practice means that you actually don't help. Today, Jesus wants to remove, he wants to jackhammer this layer out of your heart And he wants to haul all of that rubble away. He wants you to be filled with joy. He wants you to be filled with joy. Not, you know, worrying about what other people will think. Others here this morning are bribe-oriented givers. You weigh the cost of each transaction. You know the return that you'll receive from every interaction. When you give, it's in your best interest. The thing is, you may not even be aware that you're doing this. It's almost like it's your baseline setting. This morning, Jesus wants you to take stock. He wants to to pull and open up your eyes to actually see, to be aware of your intentions. Jesus, right now, right here, wants to reveal this layer to you. Instead of instant gratification, Jesus wants to remove this out of your life. He wants to give you future-oriented rewards. Now, others here this morning, which I'm sure a lot of you are sitting here in this scenario, you feel the weight of this text. And you hear the commands of go and give. 
And you hear the commands of, oh, in, in secret. And, and, you, and you walk out of here and you're feeling guilty, like, ooh, I don't know if I can figure out how to give even more. And, and you think that you got to go on to the downtown east side and give and give and give and give and give. But you're not doing it for the right motives either. You're motivated by guilt and shame. You're motivated by guilt and shame. Jeez, this, this is like concrete with rebar in it for us. This is really hard to remove out of our lives. You see, Jesus wants you to give, not out of guilt and shame, but he wants, to give, wants you to give out of joyful compassion. Jesus needs to work really hard to remove this out of your life. So then Christ said, how shall we give then? How shall we give? Our motivations for helping others. Now, whether you work on the downtown east side or whether you're just a person, a regular Joe, making an extra lunch to put in your kids' lunch kits so that that kid who doesn't have a lunch can have one. Maybe, maybe it's something simple, practical, of, of, of shoveling your neighbor's lawn when it's snow, or like driveway, whatever, when it's snowed. Yeah, shoveling a lawn. That would be really an act of mercy. But anyway, Jesus, ha, Jesus wants you to realize and open up and, and explore your, the possibility is how can I help the people around me? How can I do it so they don't notice that God receives the glory? Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 again. Jesus wants us to give like this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Christ City, Jesus had compassion for us. We are the sheep who are lost without a shepherd. We are the ones that are helpless in society. We are the ones that are in need of mercy. Jesus lays down his life for us. Do you realize that Jesus actually, in his death, burial, and resurrection, he brings the glory of God right to us so that we no longer have to search for it ourselves? So I leave you with the words of John, one of Jesus' disciples, when he writes in 1 John chapter 3, 16 to 18, he says this. He's talking about Jesus. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and that we ought to lay out our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Please stand as we respond. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.